fraud is becoming rife in the crypto world. Today, we talk about recovery of stolen assets and just what happens when the exchanges start to fight back. Black and white. You're listening to Black and White, a podcast by Satya Law. I'm Wen Jen, co-founder of Satya Law, and in each episode, we'll be discussing current legal issues with a focus on finance and tech. Join us as we discover how these developments impact business, finance, and the legal industry. Today's episode is about cryptocurrency fraud litigation and recovery. I am delighted to introduce two special guests that we have from the London-based Fountain Court Chambers who have very graciously agreed to share their experience and thoughts on this exciting subject matter. First, we have Nick Yeo, a barrister who is highly experienced in trial and appellate advocacy. And more importantly for our purposes, Nick has acted in a number of cryptocurrency and technology-related cases. Most recently, Nick acted for the joint provisional liquidators of FTX Digital Markets Limited and a number of other cryptocurrency exchanges and platform providers. Probably too long to list them all out here. We also have Laurentia Debrain, who very interestingly is called to the bar in a number of jurisdictions, Australia, New York, and England and Wales. Laurentia has a broad commercial practice with a particular interest in the intersection of commercial and public law. Very recently, Laurentia acted in a case before the English High Court, which resulted in the release of a judgment that has rocked the crypto litigation and recovery world, not just in the UK, but also the rest of the common law world. Yes, I'm talking about the Peruzada and Persons Unknown decision by Mr. Justice Trower. And finally, but no less exciting of a name to introduce, we have Danny Yong, Managing Director and my fellow co-founder of Satya Law. In the Singapore crypto litigation context, Danny is a name that hardly needs any introduction. He has acted in cases like the B2C2 litigation, CLM and CLN, and a number of other unreported cases or cases which remain under seal. He also acted in several crypto distress and restructuring matters, including the vault restructuring, talk liquidation, and some aspects of the Three Arrows capital liquidation. This is part one of our conversation. So Nick, Laurentia, and Danny, thank you very much for joining us today. Can I start with the Peruzada and Persons Unknown decision that was issued back in March 2023? It was a fairly sensational decision when it was first released. The main reason was that a crypto exchange, I believe it was Binance, successfully applied to set aside a freezing injunction that had earlier been granted by the English High Court on a without notice basis. So I thought it might be helpful to our listeners to break down exactly what happened in that case. To kick things off, Nick Laurentia, could you briefly explain what the case was about? Yes, this was a case where an alleged victim of fraud, an elderly gentleman based in Canada, had been approached by WhatsApp by a stranger to see whether he was interested in developing his skills in Forex trading. I don't know if anybody has ever got an uninvited WhatsApp out of the blue from a stranger before, but this alleged victim obviously didn't think anything amiss and engaged in conversation which led ultimately to him transferring almost two million in Canadian dollars by way of crypto to two cryptocurrency exchanges. The unusual aspect of this case is that here, rather than the victim simply seeking remedies against the alleged fraudsters themselves, the victim also sought substantive remedies against the exchanges in whose custody this cryptocurrency ended up. So the exchanges themselves were said to be personally liable to the victim. 
And for the benefit of our listeners, that would be the equivalent of a victim who was convinced to transfer money into a bank account, then taking action against both the froster and the bank. It's a very unusual course of action. Thanks, Wenjin. Wow, Nick, that's really unusual. Normally, a victim of a fraud when suing to recover assets would be suing, as you say, the fraudsters themselves and then getting freezing orders against them and giving notice of those freezing orders to the intermediary exchanges or financial institutions to preserve the assets. So Nick, in this payroll case, you're telling me that the victims were in fact suing the exchanges to account for the stolen assets. Is that right? That's right. In a sense, the exchanges were being targeted, I think, as the deep pockets. The fraudsters having disappeared and probably the claimant having thought that there's very little chance of the fraudsters being identified. Remember in this case, what was important was that before the victim realised or at least took any action, the crypto accounts had been depleted. There was virtually no balance left on the exchange. That is hugely important because I think that explains the rationale as to why the exchanges were being sued personally. So what I'm curious, Laurentia, is what were the orders that they had gone to obtain from the courts? In 2022, Mr. Parizadar, as the claimant, had obtained two orders against the cryptocurrency exchange defendants, Binance and OKX. And the first was a without notice interim injunction requiring the cryptocurrency exchanges to preserve specified cryptocurrency that was held in wallets on the exchanges and also to preserve their traceable proceeds on the basis that they had received those traceable proceeds of fraud as constructive trustees. Now, for the non-lawyers out there, without notice orders are court orders made against a party without giving them a heads up. So for example, typically in a fraud case, the fraud victim would go to court to ask for an order freezing the fraudster's bank accounts without giving the fraudster prior notice. This is to avoid tipping the fraudster off. It's all about the element of surprise. And Lorenzia mentioned constructive trustee as well. A constructive trustee is a party who the law has deemed to be holding assets on behalf of someone else for the purpose of remedying a wrong. In this case, Mr. Peruzada was asking the court to find that the exchange was holding crypto assets on trust for him, something which made the exchanges terribly unhappy, of course. Why? Well, because the constructive trust typically arises when there's been a wrongdoing. So here, Mr. Peruzada was basically accusing the exchanges of being party to the fraud against him. And what was the second order, Laurentia? The second order was much more common in cryptocurrency cases against exchanges, which was information about the alleged wrongdoers in exercise of the court's bankers' trust jurisdiction. At the hearing in March 2023, Binance had applied to discharge the without notice interim injunction that had been granted against it in 2022, and OKX also attended to support Binance in that application. Exchanges would ordinarily not disclose their customer information voluntarily because of confidentiality obligations owed to their customers. And that is why disclosure orders of the type that Laurentia has just described are very important tools to help a victim uncover the identity of the people behind a fraud and to seek recovery. Could you maybe share with us what were Binance's or the other exchanges' main grounds to set aside the without notice orders? Sure. So Binance was quite successful in that application, which is why it was such an interesting decision. The main thrust of their complaint was that the claimant's legal representatives had failed to inform the court of the potential defences that the cryptocurrency exchanges would have in those circumstances. 
the claimant's representative somewhat remarkably and mistakenly had taken the position that they were not required to identify any potential defences which a cryptocurrency exchange might have when applying for that initial injunction. And the judge held that was completely incorrect. The defences were effectively that Binance was a bona fide purchase for value without notice of the fraud. The claimant's legal representatives were in fact aware that Binance was very likely to have asserted that defence at the time because they were acting against Binance in a separate case, which Nick and I also are representing the cryptocurrency exchange in Deloitte, yet they hadn't informed the court of the fact that that defence might have been raised. And so the court had said that the claimant's representative's decision not to draw that to the court's attention wasn't dishonest, but it was in fact deliberate, which is what led to indemnity costs being awarded. Now, that makes sense to me as a lawyer because I understand the duty of full and frank disclosure in a without notice hearing. But from the perspective of a victim of fraud, that outcome may seem odd. They may ask, why does a victim need to tell the court what defences the other side might raise? A without notice order is significant because the defendant, the exchangers in this case, have no idea that the action is being taken in the first place. So they are unable to mount a defence. And that's why the need for full and frank disclosure arises which simply means it is necessary for the claimant, Mr. Peruzeda in this case, to provide the court with all of the necessary information. Absolutely. There is an expectation that you give the court all the material information that would affect the outcome, whether it's in your favour or potentially against you. It's important that the applicant or claimant understands this obligation because when you don't comply with that duty, it is a ground to set aside whatever order that you've obtained. The other point you raised earlier, Laurentia, was the point regarding the claimant's failure to make the distinction between the alleged fraudsters, the wrongdoers basically, and the exchanges. Could you perhaps share with us why is it important for a claimant in a case like that to make that distinction? And was there any particular reason why they didn't do so in that case? So as you point out, usually in a case where there is stolen cryptocurrency and a claimant wants to pursue a remedy, they would obtain an injunction against the owner of that cryptocurrency account where their stolen assets are said to reside. But in this case, as has been pointed out, an interim injunction was sought as against the cryptocurrency exchanges themselves, as if there was a substantive claim against the cryptocurrency exchanges. And that was something that the court said was incorrect. However, I imagine that the approach was taken possibly as one of an abundance of caution, seeking to preserve the stolen assets while information was being obtained about the wrongdoers. However, what's unusual is that once that information was obtained, the wrongdoers were not joined to the proceedings. You'll see the title is still Persons Unknown, and they weren't pursued instead of the cryptocurrency exchanges. And so the claimant had sought to retain the injunction against the cryptocurrency exchanges, despite knowing information about the wrongdoers. The judge in the case said that it's likely that the legal representatives had adopted an over-enthusiastic approach to the merits of their client's case against the exchanges, and they really should have differentiated the substantive action pursued against the exchanges. I think what we can take away from the Perusita decision is that an injunction should be pursued against the owner of the cryptocurrency account rather than the cryptocurrency exchange on which it is held, unless there is a reason for a substantive claim against the cryptocurrency exchange, for example, an allegation of lack of good faith or notice of a fraud. I was about just to come on to that, Laurentia. In your case, the Piro case, there was in fact no allegation of wrongdoing on the part of the exchanges, right? 
That's exactly right. And another reason why the judge had said that this application shouldn't have been brought without notice, because there was nothing to indicate that the exchanges wouldn't have complied fully with the court's orders and cooperated with the claimants in all respects. Absolutely. It's no wonder then that the court set it aside. But it's interesting because prior to that decision, both in England and in Singapore, we've led a few cases, including one CLM versus CLN, where we acted for victims of fraud to sue the category of persons unknown who had defrauded the victims of the fraud. And the crypto exchanges were what we call, in technical speak, non-cause of action defendants, made basically innocent third parties that had custody or were in receipt of the crypto that were credited into the unknown wrongdoers accounts maintained with the exchanges. So these exchanges were parties against whom orders were sought, but no liability was alleged by the clients. And in that classic example, the analogy would be disclosure orders and freezing orders sought against assets held in accounts maintained by financial institutions, i.e. banks and the like, which have received proceeds of fraud. So in the same way in CLM, the only orders that we sought against the exchanges were freezing and disclosure orders, taking the position that they were innocent and against whom we had no substantive claims. I think that's quite big contrast with Piro, where the injunction was sought against the exchanges themselves on the basis that they were substantive defendants that were being sued. And as you said, Laurentia and Nick, as constructive trustees. I think Piro is a useful example of the dangers of taking an overly aggressive stance in these parties who are caught up in the fraud. But maybe, Laurentia, from your perspective, having been on the ground involved in the case, tell us how in this case was the very material fact about pooling of the stolen assets not sufficiently explained to court and why was that so significant a factor? Yes, it wasn't explained to the court at the obtaining of the initial injunction at all. The evidence that the claimant had put on was from an alleged tracing expert, which stopped as soon as the cryptocurrency could be traced into a cryptocurrency exchange. And then nothing further was done, even though it was available on the public blockchain to identify that there were other wallets or accounts that that cryptocurrency had then transferred into. And most critically, it had been transferred into the pooled account or hot wallet account of Binance and also, in fact, into OKX's pooled account. But of course, Binance was the party applying to discharge. And so Binance's evidence at the hearing was all about how many hundreds of transactions every single hour were going through that account. And that was all very significant because, of course, to be able to trace cryptocurrency requires an exercise where it can be followed and identified at some point. And that just wasn't possible once that cryptocurrency was swept into the unsegregated pooled account and mixed with the cryptocurrency of other users. So an injunction requiring a cryptocurrency exchange to preserve that specific cryptocurrency or its traceable proceeds was just impossible. And in fact, there was nine months between the obtaining of that interim injunction and the March hearing. And so by that point, there had been many, many thousands of transactions on that pooled account that to best effort, Binance couldn't identify any of that cryptocurrency. And as was pointed out by the judge, strongly worded submissions were made that the claimant should have been able to identify at that point in the case what had happened to that cryptocurrency on the public blockchain, yet they had no position at the hearing. I guess one of the questions that the payroll decision leaves open is what would have happened if the claimant had in fact fully disclosed or fairly disclosed all the facts to the court? So could a victim of fraud successfully argue that an exchange like Binance who held proceeds of the fraud could be said to have held it as a constructive trustee? Any thoughts on that? 
Well, I think Perisida suggests that where a cryptocurrency exchange operates by pooling, they would often have a defense in the form of a bona fide purchaser for value without notice defense. So that would prevent a constructive trustee claim being effectively made out. However, of course, the requirement is that there must be bona fides. So if it is in fact shown by evidence that there was notice or there was no good faith, then that defence may not be available. But of course, the position that the claimant's representatives had taken in Perusida was effectively that mere receipt of the fraudulently obtained cryptocurrency was enough to put the exchanges in a position of constructive trustee, which surprised the judge at the time because, of course, the bona fide purchase of value defence requires a consideration of whether or not the cryptocurrency exchanges actually had notice and good faith. And in these cases, Binance and OKX neither had been written to by the claimant at the time that the injunction was obtained. So they had no notice whatsoever that there could possibly be an issue with this cryptocurrency. There is always an issue as to whether on evidence you could show that there was some sort of knowledge. Bona fides are very subjective, but the knowledge element can be satisfied either by actual knowledge of the fraud in this case, or constructive knowledge, or potentially imputed knowledge if some agent of the exchange had the relevant knowledge. Constructive knowledge is probably where the claimants, if they properly thought about it, would have sought to advance their case. But that really turns on what a reasonable, prudent purchaser acting on skilled advice would have discovered. In effect here, that really means that the purchaser, in this case the exchange, deliberately or carelessly refrained from making inquiries that a prudent purchaser would have made. I would expect these days that exchanges, particularly since many of them are now subject to AML or anti-money laundering or KYC, know your customer, requirements, would ask a lot more questions about the identity of a new user or possibly even about the source of funds. But not all exchanges do that. And in the old days, there were some exchanges that allowed accounts to be opened simply with, for example, a Hotmail account and nothing more. You're showing your age, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) But in the relatively short life of crypto, that doesn't say much. It probably means I'm 12. (laughs) I think it will largely turn on, firstly, whether there is a practice of exchanges in relation to account opening that is over and above any particular regulatory requirement that applies in a particular jurisdiction. And if there is a general practice, what is that? And that then brings us to the question, would there possibly be a duty to prevent crypto laundering? And what is the scope of that duty, right? Well, that's a question to be answered another day and hopefully by a court somewhere. In the next episode, maybe. (laughs) Yes. And that brings us to the end of part one of our conversation with Nick, Laurentia and Danny. You've been listening to Black and White by Satya Law. Join us in the next episode for more insights on the latest developments in the legal landscape and how they impact us all. Thanks for listening.